country Dreams You know we can Work together and learn what we need To meet the challenge Traditional skills and modern techniques Whatever language you speak You have a world to offer Every day Climb with the ISA Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture Lecture Series. This podcast series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture to bring you the latest developments in the field of arboriculture. If you have a favorite arboricultural topic that you would like to learn more about, please contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series, at the International Society of Arboriculture headquarters in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, the host of Science of Arboriculture at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Today's talk is by Dr. Patricia Zingoli, Professor of Household and Structural Entomology at Clemson University in South Carolina. Dr. Zingoli's talk provides valuable information on two ants that are commonly encountered when working outside in the southern United States. This lecture was recorded at the ISA Southern Chapter meeting in March 2010 in Charlotte, North Carolina. Ant biodiversity in general is pretty amazing. We know that there are over 12,000 species. I've read some accounts that say 14,000 species. The reality is that they're probably at least double that amount out there, but they occupy such small niches and such, and such very defined habitats that we often don't even know that they're there. We have nearly 600 species in the U.S. and only about 30 of those are urban pest problems with 10 being serious pest problems. Now, up here are a litany of species that most people would agree are considered to be urban pests and if you, if you notice the odorous house ant, the acrobat ant, and the little black ant, those are our native species that happen to be pest problems. Everything else was imported in one way or another and has found their way into disturbed environments and has, for the most part, outcompeted many of the species that are there. And even our native species that are pest problems, like the odorous house ant, if you go up into the Smokies and you find a colony of odorous house ants, they're going to be very small, very well-defined little colonies, and nothing like the behemoths that we find here where you've got, you've got huge colonies with large trails. But we have taken them at, at some point in time out of their native environment and we've put them in this urban habitat that just allows them to go unchecked. So, so why bother discussing Asian needle ants and fire ants um, in general at all? Well, stings are one good reason to do that. Um, most people have been stung by fire ants at some time or another. In your line of work, it's probably unavoidable. And Asian needle ants, too, have some pretty incredible stingers on them. Um, the fi fire ant data indicates that about half of the population of people who live in the ranges where they occur have been stung, and over 80 deaths have been documented um, in, in the past 50 years. 
With Asian needle ants, it, it's a recently, um, fairly recently introduced species or fairly recent pest problem, as you'll, you'll see what I mean in a minute. And we've documented three cases of anaphylaxis as a result of this. Uh, fortunately, none of them were fatal. Uh, one case was in North Carolina, two cases in South Carolina, and in all cases, they were stings that were delivered from a single ant. Um, so they can really pack a wallop. They can, they can sting, the same ant can sting multiple times. So until that venom sac is, is void, it'll just keep stinging and, and pumping the venom in, into people. Both of these species are good competitors and displace other native species with the fire ants. Um, as you well know, they're in open habitats. You don't find fire ants in the middle of shady woods. The Asian needle ants are in protected, moist, covered habitats. Um, they're a lot shyer than the fire ants are. And we find these in wooded areas and, and in landscapes as well. So what's the range? Well, you'll notice that the range of the fire ants, and in, in um, um, red is the probable range, and I can tell you from friends up in Maryland and, and my pest control friends that are up in Maryland as well, that they're, they're there. Uh, they're not terribly common, but they're, they're in Maryland. We never thought fire ants would be this far north. And uh, we have a saying in our lab, and that is, put your money on the bugs, because they will figure out a way to, to survive in environments that you never expected them to. And if you think about um, the environments that we create in urban habitats, it doesn't matter whether it's an ant or a cockroach or a termite, you are creating these heat sinks that are conducive to their survival. At the turn of the century, you wouldn't have found a termite in Toronto, Canada, and now they have colonies up there that have been documented to be two city blocks large. So you, you, you provide the environment, the insects will survive. Um, the Asian needle ants, at this point at least, have been confined uh, originally to Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia with some outlier um, just across the river in, um, in Washington, D.C. But more recently, we've documented these in South Carolina, Tennessee, and, and Alabama. And I suspect that they're in other places, and we just haven't had them identified yet. And there are a number of reasons for that, too, that we'll talk about. Um, later. So let's talk about, this is where I want to split off, and I'll talk about fire ants first, and then I'll talk about the Asian needle ants. Um, the fire ants endemic to South America, first record was in um, Mobile, Alabama in 1918, probably came in, in with ballasts in, in ships. And they are found in open habitats that have been disturbed in one way or another. One reason why we find them so prolific along uh, roadways is that they're very disturbed habitats. And these species, we call them tramp species. These tramp species that hitch rides on steamers and come into different countries are able to survive, first of all, because they have a certain plasticity in the way that they behave and they're able to exploit disturbed areas very well. 
who knows how many species have been brought into different parts of the world and haven't survived because they don't have that characteristic. Certainly fire ants are one of the most well-studied species out there because they do sting and they, they are problematic. We're dealing with, when we talk about fire ants, we're dealing with um, five different species. Three of those are native, and many of you have probably never encountered native fire ants and never had to deal with the stings of those native fire ants because they're a lot, a lot less problematic. They're much better contained, much smaller colonies. But the red imported fire ant is the one that is, is so common in our part of the world. Um, they have a caste system, of course, because they're social insects. Uh, the queen is a fertile female. Um, and in colonies in the United States, there can be one or more queen. When they were first introduced into the US, all the colonies we had were single queen colonies. And now we have colonies that are what we call polygyne or multiple queen colonies, which gives them even more advantage to increase that population and um, spread their offspring around. The males are not found in the colony as adults. Uh, once they swarm out of the colony, they, are, um, they, they mate with a swarming female and they die pretty quickly after that. So they're not around for a long time, they have a good time, and then they, they bail. Um, it, as you, if you'll notice, and let me see if I can, there it is, okay. You'll notice here's the female queen and here's the male. So they don't look alike. Um, and you might see male fire ants swarming and not even, not even realize it. The workers then are um, sterile females and, um, and they are what we call polymorphic or multiple size. Now, they're the ones that you're likely to be stung by. And that stinger is nothing more than a modified ovipositor. So in the social insect world, if you're a bee, a wasp, or, or an ant, um, and, you don't, and you don't, you're not mated, you're sterile, you can still lay male offspring. You can still lay eggs because they have this quirky kind of genetics where all of the fertilized eggs turn into female offspring, all the unfertilized eggs turn into male offspring. So, Presumably, some of those workers are, are getting an egg stuck in there every now and then, and it, it certainly helps them get their DNA into the next generation. This is the range of sizes that we see in, in the worker cast in, in the ants. Size in this particular species determines the duties that they have in the colony. So if you're really small, you're going to be taking care of the offspring. You'll be moving eggs around the colony. You'll be doing some construction. You might be grooming the queen and, and uh, making sure that she gets fed. But as that size gets larger and larger, what you begin to see are the individuals that are out there foraging and, and protecting the colony. So the largest ones are the protectors and the foragers. The smaller ones um, don't leave the colony very much at all. Come on. So what happens in the colony? Well, um, it, they're very complex. Uh, they are just amazing apartment buildings of galleries and, um, and tunnels. 
only about what third of what you, uh, one third of what you see above the ground is, is what there is of the colony. So at maximum size, when they have, when all is right with the world and they have all of the, all of the moisture that they, they need, those large mounds that you see on the surface are, are about one third of the entire colony. And underground, they have, um, they have all of the galleries, and galleries will be relegated to different activities. The queen might be in one laying eggs, and, and the workers will pick up those eggs and move them to a different, different gallery. When those eggs hatch, they'll begin feeding them. When the larvae pupate, they'll move those pupae to another location. So there's this constant movement going around the colony, constant aeration. Of, of, that, of that area and of the soil around it. And um, probably the important thing is that they have all of these tunnels that go all the way down to hit the water table so that they can mediate the amount of moisture that comes into their colony. Too much is not good, not enough is not good, and in order to regulate that, they have tunnels that go all the way down um, to the colony. Ever notice in a drought how few fire ant colonies there seem to be? It's because they've moved beneath the surface and they're, they're, um, they're, it's not that they're not out there foraging, they are, but the bulk of the colony is so far beneath the surface that, um, that they really are not that noticeable any longer. Colony sizes, well, Approximately 80,000 for what we call a mature colony, and in the social insect world, we call a mature colony anything that starts producing swarmers. Because if you're a social insect and you don't have all of the all of the workers you need, all of the soldiers you need, then you don't you don't start sending any of your offspring out into the bigger world to start new colonies. You stay, you keep every, every member that you have. So at 80,000, they're going to start producing swarmers. They're going to be fairly large size, and they'll be, they'll be a fairly complete. In the summer, uh, you can have as many as 240, 250,000 workers. So they're, they're, they can be, can be quite large. Um, in pasture situations, 20 to 50 colonies per acre, it's, or mounds per acre. So large number, lot to deal with. Higher, higher examples are all the way up to over 250. Now, lest you think that these are, these are totally bad insects, um, they do have some positive impacts. They prey on, on other insects, and they actually can be counted on in many agricultural settings as good biocontrol agents. They will reduce populations of many of the caterpillars that are out there feeding on, on um, agricultural crops. They are aggressive scavengers, and this is also beneficial. If you have everything um, from, from roadkill to, to fruit that is decaying, fire ants will be there picking up pieces of it and taking it back into the colony to be processed into food. Now, most ants can't, can't digest solid food, so when you see a worker ant carrying a solid item back to the colony, he's carrying that She's carrying that back into, into the nursery where the larvae are. The larvae feed on that solid piece of material. They process it, 
regurgitate it back to the workers that are in there to feed everybody, and it is in that way transported around the colony. They also feed on uh, or protect honeydew-producing insects. So this is not such a good thing um, because these are also ornamental plant pests, um, but they are one of the insects that actually will protect honeydew-secreting insects and ward off other predators so that they are um, so that they are not disturbed or preyed upon. Negative impacts are, are obvious. Uh, the health concerns that I've already mentioned, and particularly for infants, children, and infirmed people, people who cannot move quickly. I'm sure you've all read the accounts of, of fire ants um, causing uh, severe stings in, on infants and uh, people in nursing homes. And it can happen very quickly. Uh, these ants communicate with each other chemically, so they produce pheromones when they find something to feed on, and they can have a large number of, of cohorts in there and doing damage before you even realize it. They do decrease diversity and, um, and re re reduce, excuse me, decrease diversity in, in ants and, and some of the other species, but ants in particular because they do occupy similar kinds of habitats. And um, they have a, a very detrimental effect on ground nesting animals like rodents, birds, and even young deer. Obviously, lots of problems with um, agricultural lands where they are um, particularly in, um, in foraging situations where they are present and, and able to sting animals. Also in um, electrical equipment, well-documented that they come in and they can cause short-circuiting because of the colonies. They seem to be very attracted to these sites. Uh, might be because they are, they are heat sinks. They are, are areas that will stay warmer in, in the cold, colder months. Um, lots of recommendations out there specifically for working in those areas about not using liquid insecticides, obviously the risk of, of electrocution, but using dusts and granules in those areas can be very effective. So fire ants have been the target of lots of chemistry over the years. Uh, since the 50s, there have been any number of products that have been on the market, and uh, for a product to be on the market specifically for one species, you know that that species has a pretty pretty dominant impact on an, on an industry. And we see lots of products out there that are specifically for uh, fire ants. I just want to go through a couple of the options that are out there for different kinds of uh, control situations. Um, no control, non-chemical control, chemical control, and then talk a little bit about biological control. Well, doing nothing is always an option, and it sometimes isn't a bad option. Uh, before you decide to, to treat for fire ants, it's a good idea to understand exactly what size budget you have, because it can be very expensive. 
also what kind of a commitment you have. There's, there's really no reason to begin controlling fire ants unless you're going to see the job through because fire ants are something that will reinvade and be a constant problem. So you can certainly knock down populations for short periods of time, but to really devoid an area of fire ants is very difficult. It takes a huge commitment and it takes a lot of, a lot of resources. One of the other alternatives is, to just, is just to allow fire ants to establish in the ecosystem that you're, that you're working in and let them sort it out. Often with invasive species, you will see this huge flush of populations. And over time, those populations actually will decrease once the ecosystem helps you sort out who can survive and, and who can't. So it's not always necessary, unless you absolutely have to have control, it's not always necessary to try to kill every last fire ant. So keep that in mind. Doing nothing is always an option. I do want to talk about some of the non-chemical control strategies that are out there. Um, if you throw dirt onto fire ants, it, it will not kill the fire ants. It will just cause them to move farther up. Um, grits, it depends on whose study you read, but um, grits will, will not make fire ants explode if they feed on them. <laughs> Well, surely you've all heard that folk tale that there that that'll happen. Um, it, not, none of those things work. You can't you can't feed them any of any of the um, home remedies and have the, and have that work. Hot water. Now there's one for you. Hot water actually will work. Um, two to three gallons on on a mound will actually kill about 60% of that mound. And if you do it on a cool sunny morning. Um, when the colony is up closer to the surface, you actually can have an impact on it. But how many people want to be carrying two to three gallons of boiling water out to a field or a lawn to eliminate the fire ants? It is possible, but um, it might be more dangerous than a few fire ant stings. Gasoline and kerosene. Um, don't even think about it. <laughs> Don't even, don't even think about it. And if I ask you, let me go back, if I ask you how many of you have used gasoline or kerosene on fire ant colonies, and please don't raise your hands because I don't want to know, it is illegal. <laughs> do not do that. That same water table that those fire ants are tapping into, when you pour gasoline or kerosene onto that colony, it has a direct line right down to the water table. So it, it's, not, it's not a good idea to do that. Gasoline belongs in your car, in your tractor, not, not on your fire ant colony ever, ever, ever. Now when you're talking about homes and structures, if you have indoor colonies or if you have colonies that are um, right up against a doorway. I always recommend that people apply some kind of application to that. You can, uh, you can do a variety of things, but if, if you've got fire ants that have easy access into a structure, you obviously need to eliminate, 
eliminate those because they will find their way in and people will get stung by these. Um, if they're coming in from outdoors, you can deal with that, that mound outdoors. It, and if they're coming from a distance from outdoors, you can probably apply some kinds of barrier treatments around uh, doorways and, and entryways. Ant proofing is, is helpful, but ants are one of those insects that can get into the tiniest of places. And so while we always tell people, absolutely, caulk if you can, use sealers if you can, make sure that you have door sweeps on, um, and that will help. But will it keep out every last ant? Absolutely not, because the ants, once again, put your money on the bugs. They will get into places that you just don't expect them to get into. Anytime you can remove food and water resources, one of the things that, that we find around um, structures, and even at Clemson University, we have a huge cat population because we have a few cat ladies on campus that like to feed the cats. Um, if you ever look at pet dishes with, with food in it, um, the fire ants are really drawn to those things. They, they're protein feeders. These are carnivorous organisms. They're out there looking for sources of protein. They need that protein in their diet to put it into their eggs so that the eggs can develop. They won't develop without it, so they've got to have protein. So anything you can do to remove those sources. Water, not so much. They can, they can get water in, in lots of different ways and lots of places, but when you're providing them with food close to a house, um, you're going to end up with, with those ants having a pretty hefty, healthy population. Chemical control. Um, there's the two-step method, otherwise known as the Texas two-step because it was originally designed at, at Texas A&M. And then individual mound treats, treatments, which is what many people do. And I'd like to um, make a pitch for the two-step method. In that two-step method, you're, you're, you're doing two things. You are applying a broad, you're broadcasting a bait over a large area if you're working um, in a field situation, a lawn, um, even in, in smaller areas. And you're making those treatments in the spring and the fall at times of day that are at least 65 degrees and not hotter than 95 degrees. So when I tell people to treat for fire ants, I always say, cool morning is the best time, and it, and it really is the best time. It's actually better than, better than evening, um, but apply, the, apply those baits cool of the morning and make sure that you're putting them out there at a time when the ants will actually be foraging. If it's below 65 degrees, they're not going to be out there foraging. It's too cold for them. If it's hotter than 95 degrees, they're not going to be out there foraging. And if you put the bait out thinking, oh well, I'll just put it out now, they can get it when it's cooler outside. Fire ant baits are notorious for breaking down very quickly and once that bait gets rancid, once it spoils, they won't, it, it, it'll be like it's not even there. So broadcast treatments of baits um, need to be done according to label directions and every label you read will tell you, put them out when the ants are out foraging. 
Within seven to 14 days after you do that broadcast treatment, you can treat individual mounds. And there are a variety of ways of doing this, lots of products on the market, everything from liquid drenches to granular products. Um, some of you probably use orthene powder. Smells terrible, but it works really well on fire ants. The downside of using liquids is, is that you have to have a water source in order, in order to um, apply them. So if you're out in a field, that's a difficult situation. If you can't carry, you can't carry 10 gallons of water very far. Um, so the granulars and the powders are, are often what is used. Now, why do you need that one-two punch? You need the one-two punch because if you have a large population of fire ants, your bait will not get to every individual in, in that colony. They will, they will deplete the bait very rapidly. But the important thing about the bait is that those workers will be taking that bait to the most important individuals in the colony. And the most important individuals in the colony are the reproductives and the developing offspring. Those same reproductives and developing offspring are a lot less likely to be impacted by the liquid treatments because it may not, for a large mound, it may not get all the way down to where they're residing. So if you still have that core population going, then, then your colony will come back a lot more quickly. So, that one-two punch is really, is really important. So baiting first so that the worker ants um, pick up that bait and take it into the colony and those baits can begin working, working on the reproductives and offspring and then, and then surface treatments that will kill off a lot of the workers. So what happens often is if you can, if you can reduce if you can reduce the number of offspring that will turn into workers, and you can reduce the number of, of reproductives, you're essentially cutting out that portion of the population that will be taking over for the older ants that are out there foraging and taking care of the colony now. And if you can do that, you can cut back the colony. You don't have to kill an entire colony for it to get wiped out because um, because once you hit the reproductives and the young ones coming along and you don't have the replacements in those colonies, you will, um, you'll find that the colony will decline over, over time. Won't happen overnight, but it will decline over, over time. So lots of advantages to using baits, although um, using baits exclusively except in, in very small areas is um, is probably not economically feasible, but the baits obviously have low toxicity. Um, they're relatively inexpensive now. Nothing's as cheap as a liquid insecticide. They're relatively inexpensive now, and it makes it easy to treat a pretty large area. But they are slow acting, and um, and I'd, I'd say they're moderately expensive. Um, I, no matter what you do, even if you use Amdro, which has been on the market forever, and there are, um, are, are many knockoffs from the original Amdro out there now, it still can be uh, pricey if you're treating a large, a large area.
So one of the things that, that we did, it's been a few years ago now, is that we were working with a lot of uh, people in the pest control industry who also treated for fire ants. And they kept telling us that fire ant baits were not effective. Um, well, there were two things going on, probably. W one, first of all, they weren't treating when they were supposed to be treating. They, they weren't waiting for the cool morning or the cooled off afternoons or early evenings. And they weren't distributing it as much as they needed to. The other thing we were wondering is if if you could contaminate the fire ant bait, if that reduced its attractiveness to the fire ant workers when they were out there. And so we looked at, um, we, we actually contaminated them, and not directly, but by putting them in a situation where the volatiles from, from different things would, imp, would be in contact with the, the bait. We looked at a few different insecticides, we looked at cigarette smoke, we looked at gasoline, and we looked at fertilizers. These were all things that our PCOs had on their trucks and, and that, that were often sitting right next to the baits that they wanted to apply. Other thing is, before I get off that topic, baits, once you open the bait, the shelf life goes down very quickly. So if you've got bait that is six months, a year old, it's not going to be effective. It won't. It won't be. It won't be attractive to the ants anymore. Um, so if you haven't opened it yet, it has a much longer shelf life. But once it's open, you've got to use it pretty quickly. And basically, what we found was not exactly what we expected to, found, to expected to find. We thought orthene would be the biggest deterrent to feeding behavior because anybody who's used orthene knows that it has a horrible smell and it, 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 it's, it permeates everything. Orth, orthene did not have an impact on whether or not the fire ants would feed on the bait. And this was done both in lab studies and in field studies. Um, cigarette smoke, absolutely. Tempo, uh, which is cyfluthrin, commonly used product in, in the pest control industry. Um, sirene was, is another one that's, that's commonly used. And gasoline, we thought gasoline would also be way up there. And, and it, it did have an, have an impact. Um, but smoke, tempo, other insecticides, gasoline, all had an impact on how many fire ants actually came to these baits, either in an outdoor environment or, or in a lab setting. Gasoline was by far the worst. Um, insecticides, a few of the insecticides came second, and then cigarette smoke came after that. So where you're storing your baits are just as important as the age of the bait, whether or not that container has been open, and what time of day you're applying it. So future possibilities here with, um, with fire ant control. There are a number of biological controls that are being looked at. Um, many of you have probably heard of the decapitating flies. There are, there's a complex of about a dozen species that operate in South America that keep fire ant colonies fairly small. And uh, what they do is that the, the female wasp lays its egg on the head of the fire ant when the egg hatches, it burrows into the head, and it slowly begins to feed on the head. 
and eventually it pupates, and when it emerges from that, that pupil case inside the head of the ant, the ant's head falls off and the wasp emerges. Not, not a very pretty picture. Now, we have them here. There are three different species that have been established in the US. The problem is, and they're not, they're not hard to find, the problem is that in South America, there are more species than that that are, that are established, and they all work in concert to keep those colonies going. So does it have an impact? Absolutely. Um, there's some great, there's great footage on, on the web, uh, the USDA site in Florida, where you can see the ants doing all of these evasive moves in order to prevent that, that forward fly from laying its egg um, on top of it. As soon as they hear the buzz of that forward fly, they start moving around and trying to avoid that, that insect coming in contact with it, and they're usually not, not successful. So that's fire ants. Um, and in the time I have left, and I don't have as much, as much information on Asian needle ants, I want to talk about the Asian needle ants. Um, this has been um, such a fun insect to work on, and I know that may sound a little funny, but if you're an entomologist and you have an opportunity to work on something that, that people don't know very much about, it's, it's just so exciting to be out there in the field and discovering new things and being able to share that with, with other people. And in this case, it was a species that really did have an impact on, on people out in the general public. Endemic to Southeast Asia, it was first documented in Georgia in 1932. Um, it's a generalist scavenger and predator. It's an ant, so it's going to be feeding on, on a lot of protonaceous material in many cases, although you know that there are ants that, that are, are more attracted to sweets. This is not one of them, but it was not well studied. And when we went back and we looked in the literature, this man named Crichton, who is an icon in the ant world, um, described this ant as a rare ant that lives in small colonies, usually with no more than several hundred workers. And we were operating on that premise. It came to our attention because we were doing another ant survey when we were working on Argentine ants, and we kept getting this ant in our, in our samples. We were doing pitfall trapping, where you put basically a test tube in the, in the ground with um, antifreeze in it, and the ants just trip into it, and you've got your collection there. Well, this ant was tripping into, into our pitfall traps, and in a number of locations, and literally, we went to picking it up once in a while to picking it up in virtually every pitfall trap in, in the course of, of two years. Here's the queen, um, the males and the, and the workers. Um, top one, of course, is, is the queen. Um, they are fully operational in, in their world once they lose those wings and they are um, they are, have, have a beginning colony. You sometimes see the queens out there foraging along, along with the workers. The males are uh, pretty characteristic once you know what you're looking for. The workers have this really interesting caring behavior where I've watched them 
come up to the top of the colony, come to the high point of the colony with a male in its mandibles and, and then release it and then he flies off. So interesting behaviors in, in the ant world. Um, I've also seen workers carrying workers and, and it's not, that's not uncommon in the ant world but usually you can figure out exactly why they're doing that. Usually it's to get them to a food source. It's a kind of a recruitment. But with these ants, They'll sometimes be carrying these workers to a food source. The one ant will drop the other ant, and then they'll both go off in different directions. So go figure. You know, they, they have so many secrets, and they just don't share them um, easily. The workers are monomorphic. Now, in the ant world, if you, aren't, if you aren't polymorphic, where you have that huge range of sizes or even a few ranges of sizes um, to your workers, then, um, and everyone is the same size, then what determines what you do is your age. So if you're a young ant, you're gonna be relegated to the work of the colony, you'll be the housekeepers, you'll be the ones that are constructing the colony and taking care of the young. As you get older, you will begin foraging and protecting the colony, although they can all sting um, if, if needed. They do have a very prominent stinger and um, they, they do hurt. We've looked at the ecological importance of these ants. We were interested in what was going on in both um, wooded areas where we were finding them in logs and, and habitats very similar to, to termites, also under, uh, under logs and under rocks and in areas where the soil was very moist. Um, we wanted to see what kind of competitors they were in, in that environment, so we did a variety of sampling, sampling techniques. But these are the results. Um, basically, we found that when Asian needle ants were present, none of the ants that you would expect to be there as a dominant species were present. So in our, in our upstate South Carolina uh, wooded areas, you would you would expect an insect called Paratrichina phasianensis, which it's, it's just an ant that's out in the woods, doesn't have a common name. You'd expect that to be the dominant species in, in all the wooded habitats that we looked in. Not only um, was it not dominant, in most cases it was not present at all when the Asian needle ant was. So we find that the ants that are present when Asian needle ants are present are ones that are not competing for any kind of similar habitat. There'll be ants that are more arboreal, like carpenter ants, for example, or um, acrobat ants that you find living, living more closely associated with, with uh, trees. And we never found these ants in open habitats, so they are not competing at all with fire ants. So any thought that you had about them out competing each other, it's not going to happen. They don't, they don't compete with each other at all. Um, I don't know who would win if, um, if they competed with each other, but um, I don't think we're going to find out in the real world. We did look at a number of colonies to just look at the structure of those colonies, the caste system in those colonies, um, how many workers were there. The largest colony we found, um, or that we dissected, we found many more colonies, but the largest colony we, we dissected had nearly 6,000 individuals in it. 
um, all the way down to, to only 39 individuals, and the number of queens was highly variable. And if you notice, um, and this, this holds true, having been out there now for a number of years looking at these ants, those ants that are in urban habitats, the most disturbed of the environments, are the ones that have the largest colonies. So there aren't a lot of things out there competing with it, and those colonies can, can easily, um, easily develop to a very large point. There also are differences in ant, co ant colonies based on whether they're what we call polydomous or monodomous. Monodomous just means that it's a single nest site. Polydomous means that the same colony will have a number of, of nest sites, but they're all related. And we've done the DNA work now to know that a lot of the urban um, Asian needle ant colonies are polydomous. They're all related, but they're, they're occupying these small little, little nest sites, and, but they are interacting and the DNA is moving, is moving back and forth. In the wooded environment, um, the colonies are much, much smaller. So early literature, 20 or more individuals up to a few hundred, ours anywhere from 39 to um, more than 5,000 individuals. And um, the smaller colonies were the ones that we would find in forested areas. Now the interesting part of that is that in the Asian literature, if you look at uh, literature from Korea or Japan where these ants are native, you find that they are operating much more like our woodland Asian needle ants and that they are, um, that the colonies are, are much smaller and, and much more well-defined. So you don't see this polydomous situation where you've got multiple nest sites that can add up to several thousand in individuals. You're looking at much, much smaller colonies. So the presumption is that in wooded areas, in undisturbed habitats, there are certainly some regulating factors in there that keep them, keep the population smaller that are probably similar to things going on in, in Japan and other parts of Asia where they, where they exist. But when you get into the urban environments, all bets are off and they can do pretty much what they want to do. So here's some typical urban nesting habitat. Damp areas um, in the soil beneath rocks and mulch and, and leaf debris. So it has to be pretty moist. They don't like dry conditions. They don't do well in dry conditions. We've tried a number of times to keep colonies in the lab over the winter. We've yet to be successful because we just can't get the moisture quite right. They love to be under landscape object. Any kind of ornamental object in, in the uh, area is, is a great place for them to be. Stumps, logs, um, the, the two sites on the left are both from my yard and I can tell you that these ants own my yard. We've lived in that, in that house for um, just under six years. When we first moved in, there were no Asian needle ants that I found. I'm sure they were there. I just didn't find them. And I was aware of them at the time, so I was looking for them. And within two years after we lived there, they were virtually the only ant I could find in, in my yard. So they really, they really will um, dominate. So, any kind of man-made object, anything. So there's Mr. Frog 
and underneath him was a great um, Asian needle ant colony. We don't have a lot of records of them entering homes, although they do enter homes, the, the swarmers enter homes, and for whatever reason, in the last two weeks, I've killed 10 of these in the, on the upper floor of my house. So they're getting in somewhere. So we say that they're in close association with, with the soil, but that doesn't mean that they haven't found similar conditions maybe underneath a shingle or in, in a uh, drain pipe or in a situation like that where they have adequate moisture, they have adequate debris to, to form their colonies in. Their colonies are very shallow, they don't go, they don't go far into, into the ground and we, um, and we don't, we don't um, find them in, in deep situations at all ever. Uh, worker activity from roughly the end of March, April through October uh, when the temperatures are above 15 degrees C, roughly 60 degrees, and they peak in, in August. So you, you see this huge, um, this huge proliferation of the workers and then all of a sudden it, it declines very rapidly. We collected a few other species of ants in our pitfall traps over, over several years and um, none that would compete with that ground-dwelling habitat. We also found a few other organisms like um, millipedes or, um, yeah, millipedes and, um, and sow bugs, which have that tough armor on, on the outside. Swarmers start flying around in late May, early September, and um, we always captured males in much higher proportions than females in our light traps when we were light trapping for the swarmers. Now, could just be an artifact of the trapping method we were using, but when we just observed um, swarmers coming out of colonies, we always saw more males than we did females, so we're not sure what that's all about. And here's just a graph showing you um, temperature and, and the number of workers, and you can see that it's peaking there in, in midsummer and then declining very rapidly in terms of activity. So we are presuming that they don't live um, much more than a season. So if, you're, if, you, um, if you have pupated and you emerge in early summer, you're probably not going into the winter um, as a worker. It's probably those, those workers that have, um, that have developed late in the season that are actually going into the winter and coming out on, on the other end. And then with the, um, with the swarmers, there's just that little bit of lag behind the worker activity when, when the swarmers um, are emerging and are out there flying around. So we looked at some treatment strategies. Nine houses, varying sizes and shapes. We looked at full perimeter treatments for these. We looked at, um, <coughs> excuse me, we looked at uh, limited treatments that, that were, um, or excuse me, full treatments were perimeter treatments and then targeted treatments of nest sites that we could identify, and then a limited treatment, which was perimeter treatment only. And, and that's often the standard in the ant world, where you just treat the perimeter of a structure and I guess pray that the ants uh, will, will come in contact with that. Um, so what we found 
was that the perimeter-only treatment uh, was not very good. It gave marginal control at best um, at the sites where the infestations were the largest. And the targeted treatments combined with the perimeter treatment were significantly, were, were not significantly better, but they were better. And we realized that there are so many colonies out there in an area where the infestations are, are large that um, any kind of a liquid treatment alone is not, is not going to be very effective. And what we've been recommending to pest control op operators in the absence of, of having done all of the research that, that will come is to reduce conducive habitat, which is always a, um, a good strategy, um, and, and then inspect and identify the colonies and do targeted treatments. I don't think there's any evidence that um, that a perimeter treatment is going to do a great deal to, to uh, eliminate those colonies or even reduce them. One of the good tricks for insect control um, in an urban environment always is to, is to do your uh, treatment strategies as early in the season as possible before populations bloom because you have a much better chance of really knocking back that population or eliminating it than you do when, when they have been able to occupy many more niches and, and they're out there and much more pervasive in, in the environment. So our next step with the Asian needle ants, this is Ying Mo, she's a new graduate student in, in our lab, um, and she's going to be looking at food preferences and then linking those food preferences to bait products that are on the market and then using those bait products to try different application strategies to, um, to reduce these populations. So that's where we are with the Asian, um, the Asian needle ants now. I can tell you that it is not a rare ant that lives in small colonies any longer. Um, that they are here, they're, they're very common in North Carolina. You have people at NC State who are, who are also working on a Asian needle ants, and um, they're a real dominant force out there. We do think that there are many more people being stung by Asian needle ants um, than we've been able to document, and probably many more cases of anaphylaxis than we've been able to document, because if you're in the southeastern United States and you're stung by an ant, Everybody thinks it's a fire ant. Um, and if you've had experience with the medical community, they always want to give a diagnosis. And so, and so fire ants are often the diagnosis. It's like brown recluse spiders. In, in 20, almost 28 years at Clemson University, I have seen two brown recluse spiders come into our department for identification. I've seen them once in the field and yet every spider bite anybody gets is a brown recluse spider. It, it just isn't like that at all. They're much rarer than people think. These ants are much more common. Um, many people don't even know that they're there, and, and the sting is always causes some kind of an allergic reaction. So with that, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to try to answer them. No, no seven, seven dust works, works pretty well. I think the thing about fire ants is, I learned this the hard way. We were doing a field trial for a company in the middle of the drought 
we went out into a pasture and we identified, we flagged all of these fire ant colonies. We did the application. We were supposed to come back on Monday and, um, and see if there had been, see what kind of activity was still on those mounds. Well, from the time we did the application until we got back on Monday, there was a huge rainstorm. And so we got back, and instead of, instead of having these really well-defined mounds everywhere, we had six times the number of mounds out there that we had when we, put out, when we put out our applications. And the reason is, and this is the problem with just using a single method, the reason is that in the drought, those colonies are far below the ground. They're still out there foraging. And as soon as they get enough moisture, they'll bubble up to the surface. So if you do a mound treatment and only a mound treatment, that works fine if you're in if you're in a yard. You know you can you can handle it that way. But if you're in a in an area, a large area, you've got to account for the fact that there are many more mounds out there than you can actually see. So, but orthene, yeah, orthene works well. No, but you know all all of these insects will do what they have to do to protect themselves. Um, and that's, that's really all they're doing, is trying to survive another day. Really what happens when you're having a, any kind of an allergic reaction is, and with anaphylaxis, it's a systemic reaction, so your whole body is reacting. You probably would have swelling. You probably would feel faint pretty quickly. When we're out in the field, when we're out in the field, we make sure that we always have Benadryl with us because we don't know how people are going to react to a sting. You're much more likely to be stung by a fire ant, and multiple stings with fire ants are what is really serious. If you know that you're allergic, well, even if you don't know that you're allergic, the best thing to have with you is is liquid Benadryl. It's a children's formula. You take still take an adult dose but that liquid gets into your system a lot more quickly than a capsule would. And, and I would say if you don't know how you're going to react to, to do that immediately. If you start feeling the slightest bit faint or fuzzy or you feel, I've had some bad experiences with yellow jackets over the last few years, you just kind of feel at your temples, you, can, you feel this pressure if you feel like you're having a reaction, take Benadryl immediately. We keep it with us all the time. We just have a little medical kit that we, it's just part of our field kit. We just take it with us. And if you're out there, we're, I mean, whether it's fire ants, Asian needle ants, or anything else, you should always be prepared for something like that anyway. Thank you. Dr. Zingoli's publications on ants and their management can be found online at the Clemson University Extension website or by Googling Patricia Zingoli Ants. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for this lecture is SA6372. Again, SA6372. If you would like to provide feedback on this or other ISA podcasts, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas at the ISA office or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. In every country, trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need. Meet the challenge, traditional skills and modern techniques, 
Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. 